Well, good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm glad you guys could come to, to Community Church. It's nice to see you all this morning. It's beautiful weather that we've been having, too, and I know today's going to get hot, so make sure you, you stay safe out there. But uh, we're going to do something a little bit different than we normally do at Community Church. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of people here, but that's okay. We're, we're going to try it anyway. Um, I want you to turn to your neighbor and uh, tell them that it is good for you to be here in the house of the Lord. Why don't you do that for a little bit? Um, <laughs> it, is, it is good for you to be here in the house of the Lord, yes. For, for those of you who are maybe a little bit more on the uh, introverted side, I promise you we don't normally do this at Community Church, so please come back next week. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I asked you to do that because that's a good reminder for us to know that of where we are and, and what we're doing here, what this means, right? Why are we here? Why do we go to church on Sundays? Well, this is the house of the Lord, right? And not the physical building, but this body of believers. This is where God dwells. And we sang this morning that the house of the Lord is filled with joy. Why? Why is it filled with joy? Well, because it is here that we learn about God, right? We learn truths from the word and then apply them to our lives. It is here that God speaks encouragement to some, conviction to others. But the goal and the hope is that we all get closer to God because of it. In Genesis 13, Abram, later Abraham, uh, leaves Egypt after lying to Pharaoh that Sarai, his wife, was his sister. And it is from here that he goes to Bethel, where he made an altar to the Lord at the first, is what the verse says, and calls upon the name of the Lord. That's verses 3 through 4 of Genesis 13. Bethel in Hebrew means house of God. And so in Genesis, we see Abram messing up. He sinned, and then he went back to Bethel to rebuild that which was broken down, namely his fellowship and his relationship with God. And so the human race is very good at rebuilding what was lost. You know, I, I, think, I think of, for example, the Great Chicago Fire. Um, on October 8, 1871, the city of Chicago burned for two days from a fire that started in a barn on the southwest side of the city, as, as some believe. And so once the fire was extinguished, rebuilding occurred almost immediately and lasted until approximately 1879. So about seven, eight, nine-ish years, uh, rebuilding took place. Uh, when the Twin Towers fell on 9-11, it would be almost five years until construction of a new tower, One World Trade Center began and the area around Ground Zero would be rebuilt. So what's my point behind all this? Well, when tragedy strikes, we have this instinct to want to rebuild. It shows resiliency, courage, stubbornness, audacity, etc. Right? And as Americans, I believe one of the primary factors why we rebuild is out of a sense of pride. Um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of in our DNA as a free people. We're just very prideful. And it's not necessarily bad in its proper context. But, you know, I'm glad we rebuilt after the fire. I'm glad we rebuilt after 
We know in our hearts that rebuilding is vital for the life of a city. But yet when it comes to spiritual matters or the condition of our own spiritual life, I fear that we kind of cast a blind eye to it. Why is it that we tend to build back our physical, quote, walls rather quickly, but we neglect to build or maintain that which is most important, which is our relationship with Christ? This morning, we're going to look at Nehemiah 2, verses 11 through 20, when the Israelites begin to rebuild the walls of their city. But in many ways, Israel rebuilding their physical walls was symbolic of them rebuilding their spiritual walls, the spiritual walls of their hearts. You know, and I believe this is why the book of Nehemiah was included in Scripture. Uh, last time, if you remember, I was up here, we looked at the traits of a godly leader from the example that Nehemiah provides us in the first 10, chap- 10 verses I'm sorry, of chapter 2. We learned that regardless of our position in life or our rank, as believers, we are to lead others to Christ, for this is our calling. That's Matthew 2, 28, 19 through 20. Nehemiah gives us a powerful testimony of what a godly leader looks like and is supposed to be, and we can learn valuable lessons from his example. But I truly believe that the main point of this book is to show us the importance of coming back to a true and full relationship with God, enjoying sweet communion with him and how to do that. You could see this almost kind of like a parable, if you will. I know we've been going through Luke and we've been uh, reading about Jesus's various parables uh, to his audience and, and how he used those to illustrate a point. Well, we could understand the book of Nehemiah as a as a sort of true historical parable, if you will. One that explains the steps needed uh, to take in order to come back to God after a time of backsliding and how to repair or rebuild those areas of our lives that maybe we've compromised or overlooked. So in in chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, uh, we read of how Nehemiah tied up loose ends in preparation to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And then in verses 17 through 20, we read of how he inspired the people to accomplish the task set before them. In other words, he set the pace, he set the tone for the children of Israel. And this point in Israel's history is a turning point. Not only will they take up the task of rebuilding their city's physical walls, but as I had mentioned earlier, Nehemiah calls them to something greater, and that is spiritual matters. Beginning here in chapter 2 and continuing throughout the rest of this book, Nehemiah shows them how to build back the spiritual walls around their hearts, how to guard against the effects of sin, and to how to remain a people set apart to God. And through Nehemiah, God calls Israel to build back to sweet fellowship with him. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this lesson. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. Um, I I pray that your word would be be said, your word would be taught. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and our ears to hear what it is that you want us to to learn today. Um, I pray that we would continue to enjoy sweet fellowship with you, that we would abide in your word, and that we would stay close to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 11. Verse 11 says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. 
Now, Nehemiah's journey finally comes to an end, and he enters Jerusalem. But when he gets there, he doesn't work for three days. <laughs> Why did he take three days to do this? What, what was he doing? Well, you know, now the human instinct here is to read this and approach it one of two ways. One way um, is one of haste. One way is one of laziness. But I can tell you both ways are wrong assumptions. The first approach is one of impatience. Right? You might think, well, why did he take three days? There's work to be done. You know, there's no time to waste time. Let's, let's get the show on the road. But simply, simply put, that approach would be foolish. <clears throat> and the second approach is one of laziness. Perhaps he took three days to soak it all in and, and you know, sightsee since he had never been to Jerusalem. He desired to check out all the tourist traps and the museums and the parks and kind of just soak it all in. But <laughs> I can assure you there was nothing there. Uh, it was just a pile of rubble and heaps. So we know he didn't do that. But, you know, that, that approach is also foolish too, though, because it... It, it doesn't, it, you make mistakes when, you, when, when you're too lazy and when you're too hasty, right? It, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of resources. Um, instead, Nehemiah took those three days to prepare some last minute things, right? And, and, and here we have more examples of Nehemiah's preparation. And I know last time when I was up here, we were talking about leadership and, you know, preparation was kind of a buzzword. I said it a lot. Uh, but it's nonetheless important to repeat it here again because preparation is wise. Um, and this is why it is foolish to be hasty or lazy. Um, working in haste leads to mistakes that could have been avoided, and laziness leads to mistakes that should not have been. And so notice that this is an example of planning and inspiration based, I'm sorry, planning and and. Uh, based on inspiration from God, based on the calling of God, right? He was simply obeying what God had called him to do, the call that God had placed on his heart. And because of that, no amount of intimidation, confrontation, opposition, or challenge of any magnitude was going to frustrate his steadfastness to God. So Nehemiah rides into Jerusalem. He takes three days. He gets settled and plans out his next move. Verse 12, it tells us uh, how he did that. It says, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except for the one on which I wrote. Remember last time when I said there is planning with what you know and planning with what you don't know? Well, Nehemiah finally has a chance to view the walls and see just how extensive this rebuilding project will be. And so what Nehemiah was doing in those three days that he was there was inspecting the walls. And, you know, this makes sense because you can't come up with a plan if you don't know what you're dealing with. Nehemiah had prepared to get to Jerusalem, but he couldn't create a plan to fix it until he saw it. And notice also that he said God had put this in his heart. Right? He says, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do. Nehemiah knew what he was supposed to do. He was confident in the calling that God had placed on his heart, and he did it. He went full throttle into it. And I love the fact that he didn't tell anyone what he was up to. Why? Right? Did he do that? Because in case it didn't work out, 
um, in case they couldn't do it. Maybe he thought he was in over his head, right? Well, neither of those are obviously correct, right? He didn't tell anybody what to do because, or he didn't tell anybody what he was doing because he didn't know how to do it yet. He didn't quite know the steps needed to accomplish this task. He knew it was going to happen, but he waited to see how to make it happen. <clears throat> the, the New Living Translation uh, Study Bible says this about that. It says, Nehemiah needed firsthand knowledge of the condition of the walls to present credible plans for their reconstruction. And I love that it says credible. Uh, it, in case you don't know, that word credible means believable or trustworthy. Right, so these plans had to come from first-hand experience. Remember, this was not a whim that Nehemiah dreamed up one day. Oh, I feel like I'm going to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> he never did that. And this is convicting to me because how often do I jump ahead of God? You know, just because I may know what God has called me to do doesn't mean I know how he wants me to do it or how to do it. Or, or even when. I need to be patient and exercise common sense and wisdom all the while giving the results to God. And also, Nehemiah didn't say anything because, frankly, it wasn't time to say anything yet. He had a sense of God's timing. This man was extremely patient and purposeful, which is also convicting. I don't know how anybody can be so patient and so purposeful and thoughtful like he was except that he obviously spent time with God. He prayed a lot. And this is one of my downfalls, and it got me in trouble at times uh, being a mechanic in the military because I'm somebody who, when tasked with a project, I'll start getting excited about it and just do it, <laughs> right? And, and, then, and then it's later on when I get to step five, things aren't working out. And I was like, well, if I would just stop and read the directions from the first, then I wouldn't have been here, right? I... I need, to, I need to be patient. Um, they, they, there's a reason why they say patience is a virtue. <laughs> so now, in order to expect the wall, inspect the walls, Nehemiah takes a personal tour through the rubble. In verses 13 through 15, it says, And I went out by night through the valley gate, to the serpent well and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up by, in the night by the valley, uh, and I viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. Okay, so I understand that these directions mean nothing to us. So if this helps, I have here a map. <laughs> um, now, this is what it was thought to look like. Uh, we, we don't know for sure what it looks like, but archaeological evidence, uh, based on what we have there, it, we've come up with what we think it, it kind of looked like. But we do have archaeological evidence to back this up. Um, there's the various gates. So from verse 13, Nehemiah, it says he started at the valley gate, and he went around. He came in here. Refuse gate, or it might have been either that or fountain gate, came out, came back out, right? So he's looking at the southern part of the, the walls. And in verse, what was it, verse 14, um, you know, 
there's some parts that are just so bad that his animal can't even uh, his animal can't even enter. So it just kind of gives you an idea of, of what Nehemiah is dealing with here. Um, he starts up close. We read in verses 13 through 14. So he's actually in the rubble. And then in verse 14, we read as he exits the fountain gate, he goes up probably in the valley, somewhere over here, there's, there's a valley, and he looks at it panoramically, right? He's getting a full, full picture of it, a bird's eye view. So what he's doing here is he's trying to get as many angles as he could in order to properly, effectively, and efficiently get the job done. Uh, he was forming a plan to get this project done in the most efficient way possible, and it worked. Uh, because if, if we get there eventually, uh, you'll, we'll read that they finished the project in 52 days. That's Nehemiah 6.15. So that whole entire wall, everything finished in 52 days. It's, it's quite a feat. So what is the application for us here? Well, there's wisdom in slowing down before starting the work. We must get the full picture and resist the temptation to be hasty in our words or deeds. Right? Let us do everything God's way in God's timing. I think of David when he was going to be king. He waited for God to officially crown him king, even though he could have easily taken the throne much, much sooner. In fact, he had two opportunities where he could have killed Saul quite easily, and he didn't. And so now we get to the part where Nehemiah breaks his silence. Uh, verses 16 through 17 says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, verse 17, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come, and let us build the walls of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And so this is the part where we start seeing how to come back to God after being spiritually complacent. Remember back in July when I said a godly leader is not afraid to speak the truth and how he will identify the root cause in order to fix the problem? Well, this is what Nehemiah is doing. But notice he talks to the leaders first. He points them to the problem when he says, look at the distress that we are in. Why do you think he approaches them with his plan first? Well, perhaps it is because they failed in their duty to lead and continue the rebuilding effort. Let's not gloss over this. This is important, right? Because here we have two important truths, one concerning leaders and one concerning followers. Because Nehemiah confronted the leaders, we can see how important and valuable the role of a good, godly leader is. And I may shock some of you, but uh, leaders are responsible for leading, in case you didn't know. The leaders in Israel did not do that, since the work in Jerusalem was not finished. It was, it was in heaps. It was not rebuilt like it should have been. And when it comes to spiritual matters, godly leaders are to be a beacon towards what is right and true. 
right? They are to teach and to disciple and to point others to Christ. And that is the role Pastor Shea here plays, uh, demonstrates in community church, right? His job as the shepherd of this church is to tell us the truth straight from the Bible, <laughs> which, which he does a fantastic job of doing, right? And with that truth, we have to make a decision. And this is where we get to the second truth concerning those who follow. God's children need to apply the truth that they've been taught. The people of, of Israel, when Nehemiah came, were in a lamentable, woeful state because they stayed comfortable in their complacency. Scripture records Nehemiah only telling the officials of his plans, but I'm sure the people were also made aware of what was about to happen. Right? Because it was important for the exiles to hear his convicting yet hopeful message because they could have been so deep and comfortable in their current lifestyle that to them, everything was fine. What are you talking about, Nehemiah? We're, we're fine. <laughs> they lived in this compromised state for so long that they couldn't see the distress that they were in. And so from this, I need to ask myself two things. One, as a leader in my family and in my church, I must ask, am I correctly discerning and teaching and living out the word of truth? And as a follower, right, as a disciple of the word, I must ask, am I so deep in complacency that I miss the spiritual distress that I am in? You may have heard the saying, uh, complacency kills. And I, I heard it quite a bit in the military, especially in aviation, where it was stressed a lot that my mistake could lead to my buddy losing his life. And I felt that pressure. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, it's one of the things that I don't miss. But, you know, I, I, understood, I understood where they were coming from. Because if, if I made a mistake, my buddy could not come home. But there's a difference between that complacency and spiritual complacency. The military context of complacency affected someone else. But spiritual complacency affects the spiritually complacent. So in other words, if I am complacent regarding spiritual things like my relationship with Christ, guarding my heart from evil, etc., then I am hurting myself and myself only. Dare I say, killing my spiritual well-being. And so Nehemiah gets right to the root of the problem. But he doesn't stop there. Right? He offers a solution. He doesn't just stop at, look, guys, here's the problem. All right. Have a good day. Right? And he, he points out the problem, but then he offers a solution. You know, and as long as we breathe, there is always hope to repent. So he basically says, look, guys, our walls are a disaster and in desperate need of repair. Let us rebuild the wall so that we are no longer vulnerable. And I like his language. Notice that he keeps using the first person plural. Why is that? Well, because as we learned in chapter one, he is identifying with his people. Now you have to understand, Nehemiah was comfortable in Babylon. He didn't have to come to Jerusalem. He had money. He had a great career. He, he was influential. He was well-known. He was cushy. Right? But that didn't matter to him. 
because he was so burdened and so distressed about Jerusalem that identifying with his brethren and a land that he had never known was far more important than being comfortable in Babylon. And so where's the application for me? Who do I identify with, right? Am I identifying with Christ or the world? Am I yearning, panting, deeply desiring the things of God? Or am I content with complacency? The Jews were content with complacency. They were content with living with broken down walls. Nehemiah said, this is not good. And, you know, no one would doubt that complacency is easier. I don't argue with that. But it's not the right path to go. You may know this passage, but Psalm 42, 1 through 2 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He says God a lot in that verse. That word pants in the Hebrew means to long for or to crave. This is deep-seated desire for God. In Psalm 63, David says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And I love the word picture that both of these psalms give us. Because... In Psalm 42, he's thirsty. He's thirsty for God. In Psalm 63, he's longing for God like a dry land, like a desert longs for water. <laughs> Not craving for God breeds complacency. Complacency breeds death, and death equals separation from God, spiritually speaking. So let us long for God so much that other things are trivial to us. Trivial. Because one day these things will, will burn up. You know, we, we were looking at Luke about uh, when Jesus was looking uh, forward to the, to the last days and, and kind of explaining a little bit what's going to happen. Everything is going to burn. Nothing on earth matters that much. What matters is spiritual things. Right? What does your relationship with Christ look like? How are you applying the truths that you have learned that's what's most important, glorifying God. Right. So let's see what happens next. Verse 18. It says, And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. So after making known their distress and providing a solution Nehemiah tells them of what God has done up until that point. He reassures them that God is the one who is behind this building project, and it is he who has already begun the work. And here's where I think of Joshua 1.9. Right? If you know it, uh, feel free to say it along with me. It says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Why? For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And this is the most important step in combating complacency and or rebuilding portions of walls that used to be. And that is remembering the good hand of God. Remembering his faithfulness. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you not despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 
And that word forbearance is kind of like patience. You could see it kind of like that. So when I remember how good God has been to me, despite myself, despite my sin, despite my sorry, vulnerable, complacent state, despite the ugliness that I have within me, that should spark a desire to want to rebuild and come back to him because he loves me <laughs> for who I am, right? He, despite myself, to come back to communion and fellowship with God, our hearts and minds must be guarded, as Paul said in Philippians 4.7. How do we do that? Well, if you turn to Philippians 4.7 real quick. <clears throat> I know it's on, kind of on the other side of, of, of your Bible, but Philippians 4.7 when you get there and when you read it, what is actively guarding our hearts and minds according to this verse? What is doing the guarding? Well, the peace of God. Right? Paul says, Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So God's peace kind of acts as like a wall and a fortress. A wall is defensive and a fortress is offensive. So the next logical question then is, how do I get this peace? How do I I get this so that I can be guarded through Christ Jesus? It is through his sacrifice on the cross that we can even have peace. He gives us his peace, but we have to stay in it or abide in it. And unfortunately, we are prone to wander. And so in order to abide in the peace that he gives, we need to do four things. And this is by no means exhaustive. (laughs) But it was just four four things that I thought of uh, in reading through this passage um, to help us stay in fellowship with God. The first two... Uh, are the most important. And, and the last two kind of support the first two. But uh, these, these, four, these four things that we can do in order to abide in, in the peace that he gives is one, spending much needed time with God in his word. Two, spending much needed time in prayer to him. Three, fellowshipping with the saints. And four, coming to church. Again, points one and two are, are the most important. Um, If you're doing points three and four, but not one and two, what's the point, (laughs) right? Um, And this is how we ensure that we're staying in the peace that he gives us. So with this in mind, I must take the time to ask myself a a hard question. (laughs) Are there any areas or, quote, walls in my life that need rebuilding? Perhaps, you know, one of these four areas are... Is, is a weak point. Maybe, maybe I need to work on one of those four points. I know I do. Um, so next, notice what the leaders did and said after hearing Nehemiah's testimony. Right? So he, he brings them, he asks them, let's, let's rebuild these walls. Right? Let's not remain vulnerable anymore. And hearing of what God did for Nehemiah and how God moved on the king's heart was enough for them because they basically asked Nehemiah, when can we start? (laughs) Um, And I love this because it shows that the leaders were encouraged and motivated after hearing all about God's goodness and his works. 
And this is why remembering and sharing what God has done in our lives is important. Because one, it helps us to remember. It helps, if I'm reminding you of what God's done in my life, it helps me to remember because I forget. I'm very forgetful. And two, others will be encouraged by what God is doing. So if I'm telling you what God's done in my life, I'm remembering and hopefully you are being encouraged from it. Here at Community Church, if you didn't know, we have our own history book. And uh, it's, it's meant to be our track record with God, right? And in it, you can read all about what God has done and is doing in the life of Community Church so that you may be encouraged by it and give him all the praise. And not only that, but it hopefully will give you a sense of community, right? Knowing that you are a part of the work that God is doing here in Community Church. And that work is exciting and awesome. It really is. It, it's, I've, it is, I don't know if I can necessarily explain it or, or describe it, but it is quite exciting. It's cool to see God work. And after that, you know, let it motivate you to obey God for yourself and be a part of the work that he's doing in your life. The leaders and the people were fired up after hearing about what God had did in Nehemiah's life. So let us be excited to do God's work because it is exciting, right? And as Nehemiah is teaching us, let us not forget to do it in his timing, though. So next we get to verse 19, <clears throat> finishing up here. It says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you were doing? Will you rebel against the king? <clears throat> and here we get reintroduced to the enemies of Israel with a new antagonist, namely Geshem the Arab. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this verse. Um, it's pretty self-explanatory, but I do want to highlight a truth real quick. Israel's enemies oppose the work of rebuilding, and that's satanic. Like I mentioned last time, Satan has always tried and always will try to destroy Israel because if he can, then the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is broken. And therefore, God is a liar and discredited. But that will never happen. So we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> but the point I want to make is that though they opposed the work all the way to completion, they could never stop it. They didn't stop it. And this is important because God's plan will be completed. We must not let the opposition win over. Rely on the promises of God. Rely on his good works. Rely on his faithfulness to provide. So simply put, rely on him. Trust in him. So what do you think Nehemiah did after they laughed at them? Cower in the corner and believe the lies of the enemy? down himself and was like, yeah, yeah, I, I guess you're right. I'm going to go back to Babylon where I was comfortable. No, he did not do that at all. He was no wimp. This guy was no coward. He stood straight up and confronted the opposition head on, and he gave his enemies three reasons as to why Israel will succeed. And that's verse 20. Verse 20 says, so I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. 
but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Amen. According to Nehemiah, they will succeed, the Jews. The Jews will succeed because of their God, their obedience to him, and their right, also known as their inheritance or their heritage in that order. So first and foremost, Nehemiah mentions God. And honestly, that first point's enough. (laughs) They will succeed because God will prosper them. And then next, they will succeed because they are God's servants and obeying the command that God has given them to rise up and build. They will not be afraid. And this took faith on their part because, like I mentioned earlier, Israel's enemies opposed the work all the way through completion. And so logically, this would mean that there were times where they got a little bit discouraged. And and they did. We see that in chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. Um, and then chapter 5, verse 1, Israel's getting discouraged, and Nehemiah had to deal with a little bit of a mutiny, too, at times, or the threat of, of mutiny. And lastly, Israel would succeed because that is their land. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gresham do not belong there. It is not their land because it is Israel's, since God gave them that land. And you can see uh, God... Uh, in Joshua 1.4, he lays out the boundaries of, of Israel. So the reality was that Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were living on claimed property. It wasn't theirs. So Nehemiah built not out of a desire to rebel against the Persian Empire. Remember, he worked for the king of Persia. So he had a strong and personal relationship with him. So he wasn't trying to rebel. He was doing it out of a concern for his people and the city that he longed for, though he had never been there himself. And more importantly, because God told him to. His desire to rebuild, or he desired to rebuild in order that Jerusalem and those who live there may be protected from any outside threat. And we ought to have the same desire for ourselves to rebuild those areas of our life that may be worn down or compromised in order to regain true fellowship with our loving creator and to protect against outside threats because the enemy walks about like a roaring lion, right? He seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and he will if he sees, if, if he sees an opportunity. So let us guard our hearts against that. Let us abide in Christ. Let, us, let him, let Christ be our wall of safety, our refuge, our rock. To protect our hearts from lies, doubts, fears, and from the enemy yeah, who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? He knew what God said and trusted in that to protect him. So in other words, he did not neglect his responsibility to actively trust in God. And, and one last point before, before we close up here. Uh, Nehemiah did not give the Israelites any new information, by the way, aside from his intentions to rebuild the city. In order to stir them up, he gave them reminders of what God had already done. Already done in Nehemiah's life, already done in Israel's history. He pointed to that. In order to stir them up, he gave them reminders of of that, of, of God's past works and pointed at that and urged them to apply those, quote, old truths. 
And so what I take from that is it's better to apply one truth than to learn five new ones and not apply them. If after you have examined yourself, you find that there are areas of your life that are broken down, then I encourage you to start building back to fellowship with God again in that area and apply what you know to be true already. Let us get back to and stay in fellowship with our loving Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this this time in your word. Lord, I, I pray that as we examine ourselves, that you would reveal to us um, areas that we need to fix. Lord, reveal any wicked way in our hearts. I know there's areas in my life that could be better. Um, and, and so, Lord, I pray that once you reveal those things to us, that you would give us the strength and, and the courage and, and the desire and the, the purpose and the resolve to, to rebuild that which is broken and, and to give you the work, to let you work in our lives to be able to be more like you. We thank you, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for the sacrifice that you gave us on the cross. It is something that I'll never be able to understand, never be able to explain, but I'm so thankful that you did it. And, and Lord, we pray that you, you be with us um, today and this week and, and help us to, to, to abide in you, to press into you, to dr- come closer to you, to stay in your presence. We love you, Lord, and in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this song... Mm-hmm.